Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, is, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. I hope you're never the same. You know, in our never-ending I Work For Him desire to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways that will challenge the way you think about your faith at work, today, once again, we bring Brad Bright back into the studios as we talk about making God the issue. But today, we go and we're actually going to give you practical application of what we've been talking about the last four days as we apply God as the issue to one of the biggest issues in our culture today, Brad Bright, welcome back to the I Work Ram Show. Thank you for a whole week where the shows. Great to be back with you, Jim. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you stuck with me all week long. I know it's been I know it's been a lot. You've had a lot going on, but we're so very very grateful, and it's great to have you in the studio with me. I really really like that. All right, so. Let's just brief the the audience again about your background, you know, because Brad Bright really doesn't say something to everybody, but what's your background? Where do you come from? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was Bill Bright. He started Campus Crusade for Christ back in 1951 on the campus at UCLA. It grew to 27,000 staff, every country of the world, and 250,000 fully trained volunteers. We just work very much under the radar as much as we can, uh, leading people to Christ, discipling them in their faith, and sending them out. Mm. And then, and there's almost 27,000 people on staff, you said. Yeah, 27,000 people on staff. 27,000 people on staff, 250,000 volunteers. And the mission of your father that, that God placed on his heart was really just let's equip multitudes of people, which uh, he has you know, equipped. I mean, it's probably millions of people 
to just share the gospel message of Christ in a simple manner so people could understand it. Yeah, I mean, the, the four spiritual laws, my dad wrote that years ago, and now it's come out in many different forms and names, but there's over a billion of them printed on the face of the planet. The Jesus film has been part of all of that. So it's just really it's phenomenal to see what God has done. I did not know the Jesus film was a Campus Crusade thing. Oh, yeah. Da- oh, yeah. I did when not dad know that. was a young believer, still in business in Hollywood, God put it in his heart to make a film on the life of Jesus. And he pursued that for the next 25 years. The door didn't open. Finally, one day, the door opened, made the film, and the rest is history. And, and that's now in how many languages across the world? Because, I, I mean, the last I heard it was like 40 plus. Oh, no, it's in about oh, so, 1,200 languages. Okay, okay. Okay. Well, maybe I'll give me better. <laughs> okay. So about 4 billion people have seen it, and it's in over really? 1,200 languages. Now, that's when you know the hand of God's on it, because no human being could ever accomplish that. Mm-mm. I mean, a billion copies of the four spiritual laws. The only thing else that's been published that many times would maybe be the Bible. Yeah, and it's been published a few more times than a that. A few more times <laughs> than that. But, and that's an amazing thing. But really, 1,200 languages shown to 4 billion people. That is awesome. I did not realize. I remember seeing it the first time. Gosh, I don't know how many years ago. When did that, when did that come out? Uh, 70, what? 78? I was going to say, late 70s. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so I was in junior high school and yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing that. Okay. All right. Okay. A little off topic, but I just want, I mean, it, it's so cool. But your history is important. It, it, you you inherited a legacy, but not this, the reins of where the legacy passed on. So you're not, you're not in charge of Campus Crusade. Your dad had already picked his predecessor before you, your dad went home to be the Lord. He actually probably picked him while I was still in college. Oh, well. And I am not an administrator, so no one would want me at the helm. No. And so is your bride the administrator in your world, is it? Um, she's maybe a little better than I am. Okay. <laughs> but but we go find out. So did you, other people. So one of your talent. kids, are they the administrator in the household? Or? You know, I don't think either of my kids is an administrator any, either. I, I don't think that gift runs uh in this branch of the family. Wow. Okay. Well, if there's ever anything you need, big project, then I can be that administrator. You can just be the visionary guy because <laughs> administration is what I'm pretty good at. That would be one of my spiritual gifts. All right. So all week long, we've been trying to just get an idea. You, you've said some powerful things on on Monday's show. Boy, I really should have my notes in front of me. I'm, really, you said it's your view of God determines your Well, what did you say? Well, you just, just tell me what you said. Your view of God well, your view of God is fundamental to everything else. Your view of God determines your worldview. They're That's not one and the same. Right. They're two different things, and one informs the other. It's your view of God informs your worldview. And your view of God influences your behavior. Sure does. And, and there was that uh, the, Baylor, uh, the Baylor study that tied that said if they could look at your view of God, they could point in one or four ways that you would go with your behavior and how you would vote and how you would feel about cultural issues. I mean, they were able to tie that all together. They said, if, I, if we know your view of God, we can predict how you'll come down all the social issues, all the moral issues, most of the economic issues. We can even predict how you'll vote. And they're right. It works. That's just powerful. So we've talked the last several days about just the basis for morality, because if there's no basis in God and your morality, then, the, then morality is a fairy tale. Because if God is into the basis of your morality, then morality is a fairy tale. On the lines, this I'm just trying to quote you as best I can. I, I guess I'm not that good at this yet. You know, along the lines of the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Because if God, if there's no basis in God and your morality, then morality, there's, there's no point. 
There, there's, there is no moral obligation in the universe if God doesn't exist. I'm not obligated to do anything in a moral sense if God isn't here. And, and the beautiful part about that is that God does exist, so you do have a moral obligation. Exactly. That, that's incredible. You know, and yesterday, yesterday we dug into your book in chapter four, and it was really great. Where we talked about the seven rules of social change, and that was a. a Nah, it wasn't yesterday. Well, wow, time just flies, doesn't it? That was really Wednesday when we talked about that. That was just great. So on, on the, uh, but we talked about those seven rules of social change, and it was uh, never, never, never give in, that, and just don't give up because social change takes a long time. And uh, uh, then it was uh, the next one was, hey, you're supposed to help me out here. Keep your eyes on the north star. What's your goal? Is your goal straight on? Are you staying on your goal? Because it's really important because all the people making cultural change, they never took their eye off the goal. They needed to know your audience. That was super important to know your audience because if you, you've got to adjust the message to your audience because the audience won't receive it unless it's been adjusted to them. And then you said reframe, reframe, reframe. Jesus was awesome at reframing. Never feel obligated to answer the question. And what was the last three? Last three, the last three is turtle's rule. That is, you know, the turtle wins the race every time, at least when it comes to this sort of thing. If if you're in a hurry or you want to try to get it all today, it's kind of like playing the lottery. Playing the lottery is not likely to make you rich. If you want to get rich and you invest $10,000 and you have a 30-year investment plan, that's a smart, small, a far wiser way to go. Same thing with if you want to bring about change. You need to commit at least a minimum of 20 years. William Wilberforce, when he wanted to change, uh, get rid of the slave trade in the British Empire, it took him 20 years from the time he started until the legislation finally passed. So change doesn't come quickly. You know, people don't like change and they resist it. The next one is no pain, no gain. You know, if you're not willing to put up a little controversy and create a little controversy, uh, you're not going to move the agenda forward. In fact, if you want to move an agenda forward, controversy is absolutely necessary to the process because it amplifies your message. But you have to stay on message. The last one is be a leader, not a loner. Don't do it alone. Have friends that you go down the road with, you're like-minded with, you encourage them, they encourage you. It's critical. And Jesus never sent people out alone. And then yesterday, I I got that out out of order, yesterday we talked about the attributes of God because you you said that when we struggle with with issues that usually it's because we're doubting an attribute of God. You you say that more eloquently than me. Well, well yeah, uh, you know, uh, people try to fix themselves, and you can't fix yourself. If you could fix yourself, why did Jesus have to die? But people, I tell people two pieces of advice. First of all, quit trying to fix yourself. You can't go fix your view of God. And if you do, you'll wake up in the near future and you'll go, "Wow, I've changed." And I've seen it happen in people's lives. I've seen it happen in my life. I don't need to look at other people's lives. I've seen it happen in my own life. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to apply everything we're teaching, because you've really been teaching people on how to just learn how to engage the culture, engage the rhetoric. And we say rhetoric, and, I, and you say rhetoric, and you should almost go rhetoric, boom, you know, because there, there, there's these people uh, pushing things on us that, that a lot of it's not true. And so, okay, almost all of it's not true, but that's why it's called rhetoric, isn't it? That's probably, that's probably the definition of rhetoric. I should have looked that up before I got on the air today. All right, so we're trying to engage the cultural rhetoric and, and turn it into making God the issue. So in doing that, let's, let's just put it all into practice. All right, today well, we're going to... Uh, let me say, first of all, rhetoric like money can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Okay. It's a neutral quantity. So what are we going to do today? 
Well, I hope, hope we're going to use it for good. We're going to do rhetoric <laughs> for good. All right, I'd like that noted. Noted on the calendar. Okay. All right, so we're going to focus our discussion on marriage. Since just a couple of weeks ago, a judge in Florida overruled over 60% of us that live here in Florida who voted for a constitutional amendment that said marriage was between a man and a woman. And an activist judge, instead of supporting the law that was passed, overruled us all and said, nope. Gay marriage is fine. Well, now, he, he overruled 60% of us. He overruled 60% of us. Okay. And, and really, this has happened in 38 states already, maybe even more. St- and in the states that had passed constitutional amendments, the judges have overruled the people. Just in case you guys were wondering, if you forget what history class was about, the whole idea was the legislature would pass the laws, the president would sign the laws, and the judges would uphold the laws. The president's not supposed to write law, and the judges aren't supposed to write law. That's why we have separate branches of government. So the issue is, now, again, we have to tie this all back to the workplace. <laughs> Brad's got a smirk on his face. Just in case, I know this is there's no TV in here yet. We will someday do live radio, broadcast, television, whatever that's called. But we will, uh, sorry, so you'd love to be able to see this. I'm going to get in trouble. I can just see I've just dove in somewhere Brad plans to push my head under. All right, so I loved the way you opened up our show at the beginning of the week. The, uh, you said, you've said it many times. There's nothing wrong with homosexuality, racism, murder, uh, divorce, crime, uh, abortion, injustice, violence, and whatever you want to listen. There's nothing wrong with those things. No, there's not. Absolutely nothing wrong. As unless, la- unless the God of the Bible exists. Exactly. And that that's, is the, that's the pivotal point. That's the watershed. And that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're talking about today. You see, what you tr- believe to be true about homosexuality is a direct symptom of your view of God. They're tied, they're tied together directly. The Baylor study showed it very clearly. That and issue after issue after issue. You said the judge overruled the will of the people. Yes, he did. But you realize all he did was accelerate the process that was already happening. Of course. So uh, he, 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 this would have come, come at us anyway. Sooner or later, it was bound to come. If not through the courts, then through the legislative process. Because 63% of millennials don't believe God is relevant to their lives. And 63%. That's because, 63%. And that's going to continue to grow. And if you don't believe God is relevant, it means there is no basis for morality rather than how you feel. Well, let's talk about how that happened. How did, how did it happen that people 30 years and under don't see God as relevant? How did that happen in our culture? How far do you want to back that well, up? Let's back it all, back the truck all the way up. Because I know that when I went to elementary school, so I went into kindergarten in 1971, we were no longer, I know that I didn't have any of those daily readers that had Bible verses in them. Now, I was, it was Maryland. So, you know, that was already a little more liberal there. When By the time I got to Minnesota, things were still concerned. I never got spanked in the classroom. So I, it wasn't the 70s. It must go back. It must go back to the 60s. Well, here's the thing. It goes back to 1962 and 1963. We kicked God out of the schools. We kicked Bible reading out of the schools. We kicked prayer out of the schools. Now, you may say, well, that was a good thing. And you can believe whatever you want about that. But here's the point. If you teach a child that God is irrelevant to morality, eventually that child will start behaving as though God is irrelevant to morality. And when they become adult, they'll continue behaving as though God is irrelevant to morality. Now then, let me digress here for just a minute. Okay. If your child goes to public school, let me tell you what they are learning. For 13 years, they're learning, they're being taught that God is irrelevant to morality. Do you doubt me? 
No, they're t- being taught that God's irrelevant not only to morality, but to everything. They're being told that God doesn't exactly. doesn't matter. Okay, because here's the question: Are you taught how God is relevant to literature? No. To history? No. To science? No. To mathematics? No. You realize mathematics was applied to science because of the Christian worldview that says we believe God is a God of order, therefore we must be able to apply mathematics to science. Up until, what, 300 years ago, mathematics was simply a discipline they used for for training people in logic. Once with the Christian worldview, we applied applied it to science. We've seen what's happened as a result. Are you taught that in the public schools? No. None of that. And so what happens is you grow up thinking, oh, well, I may believe in God, but he's not really relevant to anything I do in my life. And that's why 63% of millennials don't believe God is relevant to their lives, to their daily lives. And the things that have occurred in our school systems and in our society since we made that choice and have now raised several generations of children in a school system controlled by the government that has taken God completely out. Let's talk about all the things that are up. Uh, the problems are up. You've got murder rates are up. You've got divorce rates are up. You've got drug issues are up. Alcoholism use is up. Uh, of course, abortion is out of control. I mean, what are all, I mean, the symptoms, the, the discipline in the class, I mean, all of these things, I mean, all of them tie back to that choice to kick God out. It does. People, I hear people say all the time, well, you've got to overturn Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade caused the abortion issue. No. No. Do you realize there were 600,000 abortions in America the year before Roe v. Wade was passed? No, I didn't know that because Roe v. Wade was passed and I was only seven. Well, yeah, 1973. Yeah. But there, uh, the abor- the Roe v. Wade came about a third of the way into the abortion curve as abortions were going up. It wasn't a cause. It was a symptom. Right. And the issue is, what is a symptom of? At the same time, you look at the crime rate. After 1963, when God was kicked out of schools, all of a sudden it doubles in the next 10 years. It's just, you look at all these their symptoms, it, those symptoms don't prove anything, but it certainly gives credence to the argument. And we're talking about making God the issue and really taking on the cultural rhetoric, and we're talking about the attack on marriage. But before we do, it's time for our book highlight segment, brought to you, of course, by Karis Christian Books and Gifts. Karis Christian Books and Gifts have been part of the Largo community for over 29 years, located in the center of First Baptist Church of Indian Rocks on Elmerton Road in Largo. Their 2,400-square-foot store is open to the public seven days a week. Check them out online at shopcaris.com. That's shop, C-H-A-R-I-S. Dot com. Be the first person to call into the studio line today, and we're giving away a copy of the book we're talking about, God is the Issue. Just call in the studio line, 855-265-2929, 855-265-2929. Okay, the book highlight is God is the Issue, written by Brad Bright. Yes, none other than our guest. And really, Brad, here's what you wrote on Amazon about this book. If God does not exist, then morality is merely a fairy tale on the level of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. If God does not exist, then there's nothing wrong with abortion, homosexuality, slavery, pedophilia, rape, or even murder. In God is the Issue, Brad Bright makes the case that the only way to change society is to change society's view of God. Did you want to add anything to that? My dad said we can trace all our human problems to our view of God. Just to buttress that and... That was after 50 years of ministry and traveling the world. That's unbelievable. So if you want to get a copy of this book, call into the studio line, 855-265-2929, 855-265-2929. And remember, you need to read this book. Don't wait for the movie. Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Read the book. 
Okay, we're back live and in studio with Brad Bright, and we're talking about making God the issue, and we started the conversation about uh, the overturning of the constitutional amendment in the state of Florida, where over 63% voted in favor of a constitutional amendment that stated marriage was between man and woman. And what's amazing is that it was even needed to be a constitutional amendment because it's been that way since the beginning of time. It's the way God set it up. Yeah, it, it is, and yet, you know what? When we start to do it our way rather than God's way, a lot of things go south just like marriage. You know, marriage started going south years ago with, you know, divorce laws got watered down. It's it's been it's just been a slow but steady process. Well, right. I mean, and it's been the cultural rhetoric, the cultural attack against marriage has been very intense, and in making the marriage between a man and a woman so easy to destroy so therefore it's no longer relevant so then why would we care about allowing anybody to marry anybody yeah well it's true but see the primary question in culture today is how does it make you feel and if that's your starting question then these are the logical results so i'm asking the wrong question no we're asking the right question culture's asking the wrong question all right, so before we head into the bottom of the half hour, what I, when I read your book and I listened to you, I liken the church's approach to homosexuality to the approach to prohibition in the 20s, dealing with it through edict. They're trying to deal with the symptom instead of dealing with it at a heart level. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, agree. I mean, we're trying to suppress the cause. Prohibition was about, I mean, the symptom. Prohibition was trying to suppress a symptom, not dealing with the underlying cause that was, that was driving it. You know, it's a lot easier to try to suppress symptoms than to heal a heart. It's a lot easier. And so that's where we tend to go to. For humans, it's a lot easier to yeah, suppress symptoms exactly. than to heal a heart. But for God, it's a lot easier just to heal a heart, and that's where things start. And that eliminates the symptoms. Instead it, of suppressing them, it eliminates it. It, it is. But here's, here's the thing. If you had cancer and I was your doctor and all I tried to do was suppress the symptoms, what would your chances be of recovery? Well, you'd have no chance of recovery. Yeah. I mean, it'd be a fluke if you recovered. And that's where... We are today in the culture much of the time. Most of us don't understand the big picture. See, Jesus said we're to be salt and light. You know, salt is a preservative. It tries to slow down decay. So that's a legitimate, legitimate role for the believer. But we're also supposed to be light. And then Jesus modeled 90% light and 10% salt, or maybe even less. And yet we spend all of our time trying to be salt, trying to stop the decay. And by the way, preservatives don't stop decay. All I can do is slow it down. Slow it down. Got it. Okay. All right. So really, I want to take the conversation, because really, the, the, the way we approach this conversation on marriage is the same way you can approach any controversial subject, because we're trying to make God the issue. So when we come back to the next half hour, I really want to talk about just uh, exactly, methodically, how we should approach this issue as opposed to dealing with it as a symptom, really starting to deal with the heart issue so we can bring about cultural change. And it needs to start, I mean, the, the churches need this education. Everybody needs this education because nobody even has any idea. They shy away from it. Just like just like in, everywhere they're shying away from being able to say anything about Muslims and terrorists at the same time. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So, Brad, I've put you off to the first half hour just saying, hey, we're going to talk about this. So I think I succeeded Successfully, I'm learning how to be a talk show host because, you know, we didn't say, we didn't give the meat away. We kept people on. So let's really get into this. We gave context, though. We gave, Okay, we gave context, but now let's give them the meat because we need to be able to, we got to stop, we got to stop throwing darts. People in the church have got to stop throwing darts at sinners because Jesus didn't throw darts at sinners. He loved the sinners right where they were at and then 
And then when they received him, when they were impacted by his life, he said, now go and sin no more. So mm-hmm. we got to stop expecting people to stop sinning before they meet Jesus. Exactly. It makes no sense to say to a pagan, stop behaving like a, a, a pagan. Yeah. They are pagan. Right. Without Jesus, we're lost and we act like we're lost. Right. And sometimes even with Jesus, I defame his name and act <laughs> like I'm lost. All right. So in the issue of marriage, how how do you... I mean, you said you want you were going to twist me on this one. So, all right. At times, it appears at this time that the battle's been lost on this issue in America. I know it's not hopeless because we serve an incredible God who can do anything. Although, it seems it may be more hopeful than ever. I'm not sure why I wrote that, but when I wrote that question, it's probably more hopeful because it's gotten so bad now that that the church and marriage have become close to irrelevant in our society. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's been deemed irrelevant. Uh, and people in the homosexual lifestyle and a lot of other lifestyles are getting what they wanted all along, freedom to just do whatever they want to do without any moral basis or structure. And it's because we've changed the starting question to how does that make you feel? I mean, once you change it, that question, you lose. We need to recognize we're not losing the battle. We lost the battle 50 years ago. When the underlying question changed from... God's existence and what that means to how does it make me feel? I mean, the first popularized version of this was I'm okay, you're okay. (laughs) That was a book, right? That was a book, I'm okay, you're okay, and it was a big popular thing. I looked at it and I thought, seriously? You gotta be kidding me. I mean, even, you know, as a teenager, I was looking at that that thing, I thought, this is nuts. But it, it went from there and helped reframe the question. From what does God think about that to how do I feel about that? Man, we are now the starting point. <laughs> and and which, is, which is an amazing thing to me because we now know more about our universe than ever before. And we now realize that the Earth is one of the most insignificant planets in the universe. And we're and it's one little planet, planet among trillions of planets in billions of galaxies. And we still think we're in charge. Well, it's because the secularists are the ones asking the questions that the culture is answering. Well, and the, the, as long as you ignore the base, as long as you ignore God and say God doesn't exist, then there's no moral absolutes. And as long as there's no moral absolutes, I can do whatever I want to do and never feel guilty. And that's exactly what Adolf Hitler did. Adolf Hitler believed Nietzsche, and so he be created. He be, wanted to become the Uberman, the Superman, and create culture and society in his own image. Because Nietzsche said, if there is no God, then there is no intrinsic meaning in the universe, so you have to create your own. And Adolf Hitler went out and created his own. All right, so I, I, I'm, I'm stopped trying to figure out what question I can to lead you in. Let's just, let's just hit this, because you said you're going to twist me up, and so now you know I, I don't want to be labeled as judgmental. What I want to do is I want to make it very clear. Christians, we need to love people where they're at in their sin, but it doesn't mean I'm going to endorse a homosexual lifestyle, an adulterous lifestyle, a, a, a racist lifestyle, a, a lifestyle of crime. I'm not going to endorse that. It doesn't matter who you are, what color you are. I don't care what your color is. And, and I do care what you do, but I'm not going to endorse it, but I'm going to love you where you're at because that's what Jesus did. But let's talk about this attack on marriage. Well, first of all, and this is where I'm going to tweak you a little bit. Okay, that's Jesus fine. was judgmental. Right. When he said to the woman... He was intolerant. He was intolerant. He said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. He made a judgment there. And the judgment was she had sinned and she needed to stop it. See, tolerance says that's okay. Love recognizes what is true. It says, you blew it, but I want you to know I forgive. I forgive you, and I'll walk with you. That's, that's the difference we're talking about. It. Jesus did judge, but he extended love in the midst of it. And frankly, you can't extend love if you're not making judgments. But Jesus could judge. He was God. 
you and I, we got to stop judging other people just because they sin differently than us. I mean, we're not God. I mean, and so I don't know. What do you mean? So you're saying it's okay for us to cast judgment? Well, we judge all the time. Well, we okay, I know we do, time. but that doesn't mean you I've know, got the right to do it. When I talk to homosexuals, yeah. I don't say what you're doing is okay. Right? No, I'm not going to do that. So that's so casting I, judgment. Okay. Exactly. So okay. I am making a so judgment. So by not endorsing there. it, I'm judging it. Okay. All right. I'm saying what you're doing from the biblical perspective, it's not okay, but I want you to know I love you anyway. Okay. So then I'm judgmental. Well, I, people already knew that anyway, but I just wanted to say, okay, so that by me saying that I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to endorse what they're doing is saying I'm judging it as wrong. Yeah. I'm, okay. I make a judgment call. It's wrong. Okay. The Bible says it's wrong. I believe the Bible. Fine. So how do we approach this? Well, because, because we need to love these people and we need to change our culture. Well, we, we treat them as real people. Look, you know, when I lived in Seattle, I, I used to have an attitude about homosexuals. And God one day pulled me up by the by the collar and said, "Brad, you got to stop this. I created those people, my image too. I love them just as much as I love you. And how dare you wish them be separated from me for eternity?" And I went, "Oops. Okay, Lord, what do I do?" So we moved to Seattle. Kathy and I got married, and the guys next two guys moved in next door, and uh, homosexuals. And we just decided, you know what? We're just going to extend God's love to these guys and develop the relationship. They're great guys. We had a great time with him. And I remember one Bill coming by the house one day. I was working out in the garage after work. And he started pushing my buttons. And, and I said, I just turned to him. And I said, look, 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 Bill, are you a Christian? And he said, no. I said, then I won't expect you to act like one. And he went, oh. At that point, it wasn't an issue. See, I wanted to talk to him about the deeper issue of who he thought God was. And I didn't want to talk to him about his behavior. Behavior is a symptom. But, you know, for a year while we lived next door to those guys, we were able to extend love. And I don't know if it made a difference in the long term or not, but for the first time, I think they saw what it meant when you love unconditionally, even if you don't agree. That's a great line. Ask somebody if they're a Christian. If they say no, so then I'll stop ask, expecting you to act like one. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so, so true. And really, that's where the church has lost their, their way on this. All right, so I, I want to know how we can use your approach of God as the issue in this argument in, in trying to shift the, the cultural view of marriage well we've got to shift the starting point okay the person who controls the question controls the outcome all right the reason the left the secular left has worked so hard to get god out of the schools is because they don't want that question being asked if you ask start with that question you end up at a very different place than where we are today they want that question off the table they don't want the God question on the table. And if they can just keep it off the table, irrelevant, they can continue to win this battle. We have to start asking that question every day, a hundred different times, a hundred different ways, whether at work or at home. We have to start asking who is God and why does it matter? And there's a thousand ways to, a- to ask that question, but that's the question we need to be asking every day. So that when we get in conversations, people say, I don't understand how this could be. Then you bring it back, you say, well, the bottom line question here is who is God and why does it matter in this situation? And you begin, you frame the question that way, so people will begin discussing who God is and and why it matters. Now, you'll get a lot of people who are are angry at God. You get a lot of people who say, I don't believe God exists. You'll get a lot of people who say, how can God allow people to suffer? That's fine. You know, I learned in politics, I don't want to get my opponent to agree with me. I just want him to get get him to disagree with me because I want to start the conversation around my question. If I control the rhetorical playing field, I control the outcome, ultimately. It can be messy, messy getting there, but that is how you get there, by asking the right questions. 
Now, but it's it's very unacceptable in our society today to to actually label homosexuality as sin. Because, uh, you know, if you if you label it as sin, then you're labeling it as something that actually can be fixed. And that's something that the culture, I mean, because Christ can Christ has paid for all of our sins. And he has, and those sins, I mean, I look at my own life, uh, who I was before Christ and after Christ, he's wiped a lot of sin out of my life. And so that makes that conversation very unfriendly, because you're actually referring to homosexuality as sin. Well, there's a good way to do that, and there's a less good way to do that. Well, let's that. talk about the good way to do it. The Orlando City Council, I live in Orlando, the Orlando City Council a few years ago was was uh, um, looking at passing some... Uh, a, a law to allow it was when you're talking about the same sex partnerships and that and allow the, you know um, different benefits for homosexual couples I went down and testified I mean there are probably 100 people who testified we each got three minutes but I stepped up and said look folks as a member of the community of faith here I would love to come in, come in champion your cause for you but I need you to do one thing for me show me that the God of the Bible doesn't exist and I'll come champion your cause for you well that all of a sudden puts the conversation on who is God and why does it matter rather than on their behavior. Um, as long as it's on their behavior, it's just a spitting match because it's about how I feel versus how you feel. But if it's about who God is and we can drive the conversation back to that point, then we can win. You know, so many times people say, God never condemns homosexuality in the Bible. And I say, well, I'll tell you what, help me with this one now. Every time I've seen a clear-cut reference to homosexuality in the Bible where God makes a clear-cut reference, it's always negative. I've yet to find a positive clear-cut reference. But I'll tell you what, if you can find me one clear-cut reference that God makes to homosexual behavior in the Bible, I'll come champion your cause for you. I will, I'll move. All you have to do is show me one example. Just one. But if you can't, then I think we have to, have to realize that God probably does not condone homosexual behavior. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. That's a great way to put it. I mean, really, you could go through a whole long list of different sinful behaviors that are just, again, as you're saying, symptoms of the heart. And we got, Bingo. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You know, you're not going to find God endorsing adultery. You're not going to find God endorsing murder. I mean, the things that, the, that you could go on, that list could be very, very, very long. Uh, very long. I mean, you can apply it to issue after issue after issue after issue. So really, it just comes down to who's God and why does that matter? Mm-hmm. And getting in the people, situation. In the situation. Okay. All right. So, in in having the conversation, because really, we're, let's turn this around to the workplace then, because it's you know, what, unless you got another point you want to make. No, the, let's the, move on. Let's okay. move on. So, well, well, I want to move on to let's apply it in the workplace because in our workplace, those that may have been homosexual but maybe still, as they used to say, in the closet because they come out of the closet for some reason. Um, Let's let's just talk about how this affects the workplace. Because as Christ follows in the workplace, really, I don't look at to me. I don't look at this any different than I look at any other sinful behavior. If the person's not a Christ follower, I can't expect them to act like a Christian. Exactly, exactly. And but again, this is the church isn't talking about this. There's probably some talk radio show guys talking about this, and this is not my expertise by at all. And it's a lot easier for you to talk about this than me. But it is. In the workplace, how can how can we effectively start changing the conversation back to who is God and, and why does that matter? Well, if you're going to be effective, you have to actually care about the person you're talking to. Mm. So it starts with love. It starts it starts with love. If you don't care, pe- people can sense when we care and when we don't care. 
I mean, they really can. And if we care, we're going to treat them a certain way. So the reality is, I think one of the reasons uh, we're regarded as so intolerant toward homosexuals is because we really don't like them. I think a lot of the people in the church really don't like them. And that's a problem. And that's weird. I mean, that's like saying, I don't like black people. Okay, why? Because their skin color is different. That's just, that's well, just it's, silly. It's, it's different. One, is, okay, it is, one different. is what you're born with. Another is a choice okay, most okay. of the time, at least. But to say you don't tell. like people yeah, see, as a whole, that's just ridiculous. See, you know, everyone on this planet was created in the image of God. It is not my place to, to, to want someone to spend eternity without God. I need to love them. You know, for years in my heart, I was very judgmental of people who were overweight. I'd look at them and go, oh, I think to myself, I wouldn't say it, but I think to myself, gross. And all of a sudden I realized one day, you know, that's not what God calls me to be. And I said, Lord, change my heart. And it took a few years, but I remember one day driving down the street and there was this gal walking down the street who was very heavy. And my heart broke for her. And I said, Lord, thank you. Now I can help a person like that because I actually care. Right. And it's what God did in my heart. And I think as believers, we need to start asking God to change our hearts so we can actually help people and not judge them. Right. It's huge. And when you've got, I always talk to people who have a lot of bitterness towards people that the first thing they need to do is they need to start praying that God can turn their anger into empathy. Because Mm -hmm. once you can start to really feel for people, then all of a sudden you start to you start to treat them like Jesus instead of you know with all the sin that's in your head. You know it's it's still a tough conversation because it's one of those ones that very few people are equipped to, to deal with, and it's going to come fast and furious at the churches here in Florida in the next year. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I guess in the really in the next in the next you know on our last little segment I really want to talk about how do, how do we keep from reacting when the lawsuits start coming at our churches because they people have been discriminated against and they can't have uh, a, a homosexual weddings in the church when the lawsuits start happening because you know in a in a christian small business if it's very few people they can do whatever they want to do as far as religious practice. I mean, there's there's all kinds of freedom that they've got. But I really want to talk about how instead of we should be reacting, we should be being proactive. And that's how I want to end the show tonight. Okay. All right. So that that's a really because I mean, it's so important that we that we start looking at our behavior in light of what Christ has done in our lives. Yeah, we can't change other people, but we can change change who we are and who we become. Right. Anybody whose life has been impacted by Jesus Christ knows that your life can change. So, Brad, in these final moments, you know, you said something on the break that I want to make sure I bring back up. You said that Jesus was judgmental. And 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 I and that is true. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. The the woman who had been caught in adultery or the woman who had been married five times with living the sixth guy, he said, stop the sin that you're in. But at the same time, right in the same breath to those people, he extended forgiveness. Love is not about ignoring the sin. Love is acknowledging the sin, but but saying you're forgiven, and I'm, I'm, I'll walk with you anyway. But what kind of love did he extend to them? Unconditional, Unconditional love. love, right? And that's something we yeah. struggle with uh, in the in the church is that we tend to be judgmental towards behavior, sinful behaviors of any kind, not just homosexuality, but that we're super judgmental on, and we don't extend unconditional love. No, it's the issue is where's your focus? Is your focus on the person's sin, or is your focus on your heavenly Father who loves them? Right. I mean, if your focus is on your heavenly Father who loves them, you know, it's a lot easier to extend love when my, for me when my focus is in the right place. When my focus is on myself, my circumstances, it's a lot harder to extend love. we got to stop looking at other people and just remember 
who we were before we met yeah. Christ. Because if you have that perspective each and every day, you go, okay, I'll go, okay, 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 okay. All right. I know who I was before, and now I know who I am today. And I'm so grateful, God. Just give me eyes. Give me your eyes to see those people the way you see them. Yeah. Don't focus on their sin. Focus on God's heart. Okay. Focus on God's heart. And that'll begin to change your perspective. And it's so, so important. It just... I, I love the way you've you, you've talked all week long about just trying to stop. Don't don't get into arguments with people. I mean, your example that you gave, I can't remember which day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday, how you were on the campus of Washington, uh, uh, University of Washington, and, and the guy tried to attack you, and you ended up having an hour-long conversation in front of a lot, a lot of people about your views on homosexuality. And the guy says at the end, well, we're really not that far apart. And then you said... I said, oh, yes, we are. And I said, let me explain. You start with your behavior and what you want. I try to start with who God is and what he wants. As I, I said, as long as our starting points are so radically uh, divergent, we'll never really find common ground. What, and, and I really think that's where we need to take the conversation back to, is just why, why, are, why is it that you ignore the existence of God? Because it takes so much faith to believe that God doesn't exist in light of everything around us each and every day. Uh, you know, just looking at, uh, uh, now to me, maybe obviously it's, the Hubble Space Telescope is what I think just has done the most amazing things for us. And now I know we've got a new space telescope out there. It's not as famous as the Hubble. But you look at all the pictures and how organized the universe is. And then you look at you look at the ant, fire ant mounds. I mean, look at fire ants. They're, they're incredible. You look at the leaf and how it takes all of our bad breath and makes it good air. It's, it's amazing. Uh, how do you keep ignoring the existence of God? But a lot of people ignore God because either they haven't been told about him or because they've been burned by somebody who said they were a Christ follower and they burned that bridge and they've lost, we've lost that opportunity opportunity to talk to them, and they just need to be loved back into gaining that opportunity to talk about them. Yeah, most of us need to put our swords away and pull out our fishing poles. Going fishing. Yeah. We need to pull out our fishing poles. But my dad taught me how to play golf. That's not my fault. <laughs> and I grew up in Minnesota. Let's put that put in that in perspective. 10,000 lakes, 20,000 ponds, and I learned how to play golf, which you can only do four months of the year in Minnesota anyway. Brad, it's been a great conversation, and there's so much more that can be said. You really ought to write a book. Oh, yeah, you did write a book. All right, we still got one more copy to give away. Call into the studio line, 855-265-2929. You're listening to the I Work For Him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him. 